Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Pisco Sour edition of Slate Money, your guide to business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined as ever by Sleep Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. And also by international business class traveler Kathy O'Neill. Hello. Who's been jetting off to Paris and hanging out with Monica Lewinsky and generally being fabulous. Fabulous. That's the right word. Veal and foie gras. I confess. Wait, so... You, did you hang with Monica? Uh, she, well, we went to the same dinner at the Louvre, but I didn't actually sit at her table. You're not besties? Not yet. I'm, I'm heartbroken. <laughs> um, so we are not going to talk about Monica Lewinsky since we haven't been talking I did like her. her talk. Okay. She gave a good talk. About, was it about bullying? Yeah. Um, we are going to talk about some bullies. There's the segue. We are going to talk about Gramercy, a hedge fund in Connecticut, which is trying to bully the Peruvian government into paying it $1.6 billion. Um, We are also going to talk about chavs, um, who are the English equivalent of, what's the American translation of chav? I think just like a drunk-ass bro would be the... (laughs) Um, we're going to talk about this this thing that exists in Scotland, and I can definitely um, have I have first cl- hand experience of this, which is drunk people. Um, and the Scots have decided they're going to do something Pigovian about it. Indeed. Um, but first, um, I want to talk about rather. Kathy wants to talk about a hot felon. Well, not really, but there is this rather good-looking man in France. Yeah, I'm all about French this week. Um, so, Jérôme Carville. Did you meet him when you were in Paris? I didn't. I don't know why. You didn't You didn't get to hang with any of the cool people in Paris. I just, you know, you look at pictures of him on the Wall Street Journal, and it really looks like an ad for, like, watches or something, even though there's no watch in the picture. But that's not actually a requirement of watch ads. Anyway, um, this guy's really attractive. And we're going to come back to that because I'm, I'm wondering if that's part of it. I honestly am. But, like, let's remind listeners. He's got a little bit of, like, design and stuff. He looks a bit like Clive Owen. Or Liev Schreiber. I think like Liev, a cross between a Liev skin, Schreiber and Clive Owen. He's like a skinnier Liev Schreiber. That's kind of... Okay, so what is he known for? Um, in, 
So in 2008, he like surprised the entire financial world by lose, losing 4.9 billion euros to uh, for Société Générale, which is a French bank. And this, I remember this vividly because it's at the height of the credit crunch and everyone is really nervous about uh, the credit crisis. Um, and suddenly the markets start going crazy and everyone's like, oh my God, the crisis has you know, metastasized and it's got worse and it's in all of the markets and everything's selling off and the Fed has an emergency Fed meeting and cuts interest rates. And then like a few days later after this emergency rate cut, we discovered that in fact it had nothing to do with the credit crisis and it was just a rogue trader at Sock Gen and everyone was like trying to cover his shorts. and everything. One <laughs> dude who apparently didn't have permission for his big big position or didn't have permission for his big position on the direction of the stock market. And right. So that's really what it comes down to um, is whether he had tacit permission or not. So w what happened is that basically he was hired to be to sort of trade on what are called arbitrage discrepancies between equity derivatives and cash equity prices. And that is to say, if you see the actual like stock market index go up, is the future index also going up? And if not, then you can try to trade on the difference. Um, he started making fictitious trades in late 2006 and all through 2007. And he, you know, when I say fictitious trades, he would trade something and then sort of cover up his tracks with fake paperwork. And every now and then, the, the fake paperwork was discovered by his managers or his manager's managers. And he would just sort of paper it over with even more fake or slightly different paperwork. Um, and his interpretation of this was they knew he was a rogue trader and they let it slide. And their interpretation of it, it was at least after the fact, because when they when they made up for when they when they liquidated his position, they lost just a ton of money, five billion euros. So their position was, we never gave you that permission. You're crazy. You're a rogue trader, and you should pay us back. The original um, the original like judge in the in this in the sentencing actually charged him with a crime and told him to pay back 5 billion euros. So Jerome Caville was for many years, and I think actually technically still is, the poorest man in the world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he has a net worth of minus $6 billion. Something along those lines. <laughs> But all of this has changed because guess what? A new judge has come up uh, with an award for him, believe it or not. They said he was fired without cause. Yeah, so a French labor tribunal. Losing $6 billion is clearly not good enough reason to get fired if you work in France. Listen, I want to I say a little bit about that loss, by the way. And you're right, Felix, that the entire financial community noticed that these stocks were going down the, and the futures values were going down as well. Um, and they were tanking on this one day. And, you know, it, then, then we got found out a few days later exactly what happened. And it was a rare moment for people in finance because we actually got to find out how much money was traded, how many, you know, futures were traded. And we got to see what the impact of that trading was, which was a lot of loss on the market. I remember when I was working at DE Shaw that we actually used that case, that one day trade to measure our personal um, model for what impact looks like on trades. So we actually used it as sort of a data point. Wait, so I, I have a question. How outraged are we actually or bemused by this French labor tribunal are we? Because on the one hand, 
it is obviously funny that they said that you did not have cause to fire this guy who was theoretically a rogue trader and lost you $4.95 billion, whatever. On the other hand, the way I'm seeing this case get kind of like played out in the press in Europe is a lot of people feel he was unfairly scapegoated for this kind of bigger corrupt system. And this and, and the message that this tribunal is sending is, look, you guys did know what he was up to. Wait, what bigger corrupt system? You mean Sock Gen? Yeah, I mean, this is literally what this is how this is. Not, I'm not I'm saying this is how it's playing out among a lot of. OK, Europeans. but let's be clear about what the quote unquote bigger corrupt system yeah, is, that- because all banks have rogue traders. It is impossible realistically to have 100 percent protection against a rogue trader. Now, you can put in controls and make it very, very hard for people like Jerome Creville to do what he did. But we've seen this at UBS. We've seen it at Bearings. We've seen it at Sokgen. We've seen it at even at JP Morgan with the London Whale. And so, well, that's, all the, that's so, all the more reason to, to, yeah. to argue that point. Like, they did nothing. They, they've found him a, multiple times doing weird things, and then he fixed them, quote-unquote. He never went on vacation because he had to babysit his fake trades all the time. There were, if they had any kind of fraud detection in place, they would have seen him. Okay, so now, again, this is, this is – I'm going to push back on this one. Like, ex post, it's very easy to say you should have caught this. In every single one of these cases, it's very easy to say you should have caught this. And in every single one of those ca- these cases, it's true. They should have caught it. It's just that there are so many traders in so many banks that it shouldn't come as a surprise that once in a while one of these things gets through. And when one of those things gets through, that is not an indictment of like the entire bank being corrupt, as Jordan's kind of implying. It's just saying... There was a cock up. Well, okay, so I'm not. I, I, I'm on the fence about whether or not it, it's really correct. But I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, which is a, kind of relay his point that he's been, and this is to some degree self-serving on his part and kind of PR. And he, and we can get more into how he's kind of tried to rebuild his public image and make himself into a folk hero. But you know, his saying is that, or his point is that rogue traders are really common, and that. They only get caught when they make a loss, not just because that's when it becomes really obvious when something's going on, but also because that's when anybody cares. Nobody cares. People will discover a rogue trader possibly, but if they're making money, everyone kind of turns a blind eye. And that's what he's saying is the corruption in the system, that the behavior is effectively encouraged in a lot of ways um, in finance, except when you lose the house's money. And so, I mean, I don't have enough personal insight into what it, how the, these institutions actually operate to really judge that. But I do wonder if there might be a hint of truth to it. Well, one thing you can say for sure is that the the recent finding by the court is a little bit insane because <laughs> they awarded him 450,000 euros as uh, for being fired unfairly, and 300,000 euros of that um, was a bonus for <laughs> all of the fake trading he was doing in 2007. And it makes, you know... He made the money in 2007, though. <laughs> <laughs> if you completely disregard the sock gen like, controls, which were insufficient, obviously, if not totally corrupt, um, you know, you just have to ask yourself, what kind of incentives does this give to future rogue traders. That's true, because you can't even get fired now for it. <laughs> yeah, I, you can't I even love this. I bonus. Love, and I'm particularly impressed by this idea that you should get a bonus <laughs> for fake profits, even if those profits turned into like multi-billion dollar losses. And I'm also impressed by the, the idea that, that it, the idea is that he should get paid 300,000 euros as a bonus for 1.3 billion euros in profits. And that's a red flag right there because anyone who's making $1.3 billion in profits is going to want a lot more than 300,000 euros as a bonus. Well, it's France. Expectations are a lot lower. For <laughs> It's a less competitive anyway, system. Anyway, in case you have, dear listener, 
a job which you're worried about losing, I can recommend that you move to France because there's just no way you, you can <laughs> ever be fired. Hey, listen, I, I, I'm going to take this opportunity, if you don't mind, to, t- to, to rant just a little bit about financial journalism. I thought you were going to talk about how hot he was again because well, he is really We're going to go back to that okay. for sure. Um, no, but I mean, so it's, I don't know if it's a pet peeve of your guys, but it's my pet peeve that so often you see a financial journalism article starting with, um, stock market is up on news of such and such, and that that such and such was like decided after the fact um, by what you know what they decided was good news in the market, and it's just a sort of empty article that means nothing. And this is one of the very very few times when you can say this futurist stock index was down because they were unwinding a massive trade in SockGen. and it, it's just it's so rare that I just like to point it out. Like this is the only time ever you can actually write an article but like that. Actually, causality in the market. I mean there there a couple moments when there's crisis yeah. that you can you can point to something but it's almost never it's true apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And now we are going to talk about vulture funds, um, which are my favorite subject. Now, we have talked about vulture funds a lot on this. Mostly show. for Argentina. Typically entirely, Argentina. In, entirely in Argentina. I don't think we've talked about vulture funds in any country other than Argentina. Are you sure? There has to have been some. <laughs> I'm thinking about Maybe Puerto, a little bit of Puerto Greece. Rico. Or Puerto Rico. We've talked Puerto Rico, about but vulture yeah, that, funds. Yeah. I don't even think those count as vultures. Um, <laughs> they're not vulture They're not for really you. vultures. Um, we have another real old-fashioned vulture fund in Peru. And Peru is where the vultures really first made their name. Like the the big Argentina case was Elliot versus Argentina. Um, But that was not Elliot's first big vulture win. Elliot's first big vulture win was Elliot versus Peru. And that's where they rehearsed a bunch of the bizarre Parry Passu concepts and stuff that eventually got them so much money in Argentina. Did Elliot, like, did they invent vulture funds? Are they the Elliot, original? Elliot didn't invent vulture funds, but they were the first large-scale hedge fund to do it, like, to, to, to do it at scale. So they perfected it, perhaps? Um, there, were, there were vulture funds who would buy up a couple million, but Elliot was the first to start doing it in the tens and hundreds and even billions. Um, in 2006, another hedge fund called Gramercy decided they were going to get involved in this game. And they started buying up these things called Peruvian land bonds, which are the most wonderful. These are why you become a financial journalist, because you get to nerd out about really obscure financial instruments. And there's almost nothing more sub- obscure than the Peruvian land bond. No one had heard of them until 2006. Um, and what they are is there was this mili- military junta which came to power in the late 60s in Peru when they had good, you know, communist bona fides. And so they confiscated all of the land from the landowners and distributed it to the peasants. And in return for the land, they paid the landowners these bonds. 
I'm kind and of then, surprised that they bothered with that. They're IOU like, notes, basically. Yeah, but like, isn't that like pretty gentle for communism? Like giving you some sort of financial instrument in return for the uh, it, 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 it was land? A, it was a gentle hunter. <laughs> Um, and That's so, my band name so now, by the, the way, Gentle Hunter. The, the Gentle Hunter. So the Gentle Hunter gave out these land bonds, and they paid on the land bonds for over a decade. But eventually, this being Latin America, they defaulted. And they were local law instruments, which were all held in very small denominations by individual landowners. And the landowners just kind of threw up their hands and said, we're never seeing our money again. And that, and forgot about them for 20 years until one day they get a knock on the door from Gramercy saying, hey, do you have an old bond certificate, you know, gathering dust in the back of a drawer somewhere? And they said, funny you should mention that. I do. And Gramercy started buying up these bond certificates wait, from wait, anyone question. they could find. Is Gramercy New York based? Connecticut. It used to be based in, in Gramercy Park in Manhattan, but then it moved up to Connecticut. Gramercy I, Park got a little bit too uh, low class for them, so they decided <laughs> to go to Greenwich. And how did they figure this out? They must just had some really good researcher who were like, oh, Yeah, okay. they, they had a guy who, um, you know, they, they had like Peruvians working for them. Yeah, they, um, they must have been Peruvians because they figured out the addresses of these people who exactly. own these old and bonds. they hired a bunch of Peruvians to go like literally door to door just Which trying to you, find these, these old bonds. these vulture funds look hard for a meal. Like they really do. Like, I mean, the work that goes into this, it's not, it's not easy oh, being a vulture. Oh, wow. And now they've sat... <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. They have put a lot of work into it and a lot of time. They've been sitting on these bonds for a decade now. Yeah. That, it's, that's, I mean, sorry to interrupt so many times. I know this is a great story, but it's fascinating how long they're willing to wait for this payout. Do they just have an infinite amount of money they can just sit on? Well, one of the great things about a zero interest rate environment is that defaulted debt can look extremely attractive because what happens is that you can get you generally get statutory interest or some kind of nominal interest rate on the bonds which is higher than what you could get if you just got paid out. And so in the Argentina case for instance, you know, if Argentina was offering to pay out in full today, yeah. A lot of a lot of the Vulture funds would have had every incentive to say no and delay through court proceedings for another year if they would get a 7% statutory interest for another year. And so they would actually rather that Argentina stayed in default for another year just so they could claim that extra As 7%. long as they eventually get the because money. They can't, yeah. Because they can't get the 7% anywhere else these days because we have this zero interest rate environment. Wow. And that we're seeing that with... Um, the claims of, of Lehman Brothers and with like Madoff claims and, and the, stuff like that. A lot of these things are, li- are literally being held up in court just so that the interest can continue to accrue. That is it's fucked a, up. A, a technical point I'm, I'm curious <laughs> about. With that interest is accruing, but they don't actually receive the money in their own account until everything's paid out, right? Right. Okay, just checking. It's, it's, it's all paper gains. Yeah. Um, but in any case, so, so what's happened is the Gramercy um, – was sitting on this um, paper and had no real idea how it was going to get paid. They tried going up to the government and saying, um, you owe us this money. And the government was like, fuck off. Um, <laughs> which just makes sense because like, this is money. Why would the Peruvian government, which Peru is not a very rich country, want to give some Connecticut hedge fund a billion dollars when there's obviously better things that the Peruvian government can do? It's local law. So like, it's so there's not no like New there's, York judge, there's like no a- New York judge who's going to come down on this. Except what happened was that Peru made a mistake. And this is the other thing you can do as a vulture fund. You can just be patient and wait for your opponent to make a mistake. And that's exactly what happened is that um, Orlando Umala, the 
leftist populist president of Peru saw one of these many land bond cases go up to the Constitutional Tribunal, which is the Supreme Court in Peru, and for whatever reasons decided that he didn't want the Constitutional Tribunal to rule in favor of Gramercy. Not that he would have paid either way, but he decided he didn't want that ruling. So he sends his bag man in to literally just take a dissenting opinion, put a whiteout on it, like forge a judge's signature and turn it into the majority opinion. And by doing so that, he, he committed fraud basically he committed fraud and more importantly he violated a u.s peru bilateral investment treaty which long postdates the actual land bonds but predates his you know whiteout shenanigans wow and so now what's happening is the gramercy is not suing over the bonds they're suing over this action which the peruvian government took which you know eff- effectively expropriated the bonds and said you can't do this under this bilateral investment treaty and so now they have a foreign court or you know the world bank the international center for the settlement of investment disputes which can theoretically rule on this and if they rule on it they it has the status of a treaty obligation and Peru really does need to pay those. So that's their leverage. So that's the leverage. And now, and now the thing which is just happening this week is that there were these big elections in Peru um, and the winner of the elections in Peru, it looks very much like, I mean, it's extremely close, was a financier, like like one of the most sophisticated bankers in the Americas, this guy, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who was chairman of First Boston for like over a decade, worked at the World Bank and the IMF. And so now you have a fascinating, fascinating, like, showdown mm-hmm. between two incredibly sophisticated players. And I can't wait to see how What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. This is Felix's bag, man. <laughs> this is... I mean, it seems like you, you don't want to get dragged into trade court over, like, faking court decisions. That's, like, something you don't want to... What could the court, like, like what could the court threaten to do if they don't pay this? The, the court can hand down a judgment. And then the judgment, basically, at this point, especially if Petro Pablo Kuczynski is um, president, he will pay an exit decision. You can be pretty sure about that. Now, it takes years for exit decisions to actually come down. So... Mm-hmm. What's probably going to happen is that PPK, as everyone calls him, is going to sort of negotiate quietly in the shadow of the exit um, hearings and try and maybe come to an, uh, an agreement that way. Because the worst possible outcome really is that Peru winds up being forced to pay off Gramercy and still leaves all of the other Peruvian land bondholders who are actually Peruvian and live in Peru and would actually reinvest the money in the Peruvian economy and leaves them with nothing. If they're going to pay off the land bonds, they should at least pay off the land bonds rather than just Gramercy. Do the land bonds actually like say exactly what they're going to pay off and what currency? And Oh, and that's the other thing. Yes, they do, except that the currency they're denominated in is like two currencies ago in Peru. So that's, that's, the, that's the angle, right? <laughs> and, so, and so that was the angle that the Peruvian government took. Was the, well, it was two currencies ago, and so they offered like one billionth of what yeah. Gramercy <laughs> Which, wanted. I, mean, I feel like that's kind that's of... kind of legit. Like, that's and, the risk. And, and now there's a big fight about because it's very common to index these things to the dollar or to CPR oh to God. inflation. And so there's a million different ways you can index these things. It gets gnarly. So can I can mm. I just share my obser- one observation about this case, which is that in general, I don't have super hard feelings about vultures. I think I don't quite share 
Felix's enthusiasm for them, but I, I don't look at them as like pure like manifestations of evil. Like they often get treated in the press in the U.S. I, I, I think that's because they do serve one important purpose, which is they are kind of a buyer of last resort for debt, and you do kind of need that in the markets. You know, if they, you have yeah. like traded securities, but yeah. these are not traded securities. And that's what I was about to say is that this is like the worst case scenario for Vulture Fund, where they are literally just finding some obscure instrument that has been sitting as you said, gathering dust in a drawer completely irrelevant to the functioning of anybody's market at this point, denominated in a currency that no longer exists, and saying, pay us for this. I mean, this is actu- this is the kind of evil that people uh, kind of caricature them for typically, I think. Um, you have to admire the hustle, I think. But it is Well, you know, here's my thing about it, since we're having our things about it, yeah. which is that it's it's basically they, they turn promises of debt that have been, you know, uh, broken, broken promises of debt into money. Sometimes they put pressure on that. But, you know, things like, I promise you to pay a pension after you retire, if you're a teacher or a fireman, that kind of thing. I don't think Vulture funds ever pick up on. It's only certain kinds of promises. Now you see those things are not transferable. Exactly. So that's the problem. But yeah, I mean, they're they're definitely getting into litigation finance. We talked about that with the Peter Deal case. They're Definitely investing in weird things which aren't always securities, but in, it needs to be something which a third party is allowed to invest in. And of course, you know, it goes without saying that if Gramercy does get this $1.6 billion, none of that is going to go back into the Peruvian economy in any way, shape, or form. It's all just going to, it's just going to be a massive dividend to the rich people who invest in hedge funds. It's this just going to make extraction. like, it's yeah. just going to make like daycares in Stanford, Connecticut even more expensive. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Jordan. Yes, Felix. Do you fancy a drink? I do. I'm a little sad that we called this episode the Pisco Sour edition and are not drinking right now. Pisco Sour is one one of the weird – I'm going to digress just for one minute here. What is Pisco? Pisco is a Andean rum, basically. Oh. It's good. It's white liquor. It's it's generally drinking in the – drinking? It's generally (laughs) drunk in the form of a cocktail known as the Pisco Sour, um, which is Pisco and Sour Mix. Um, the big question is, do you put a little bit of bitters in there? Uh, if you're going to say what we regret, I'm going to regret that Jerome Herville is not with us drinking with us. Yeah, Jerome yeah. should be drinking a Pisco Sour <laughs> with us. But anyway, uh, there's, a, there's a huge fight basically between Peru and Chile about who invented the Pisco Sour. Not and unlike the fight between Scotland and Ireland about who invented whiskey. Indeed. And so the, the, you can always tell whether you're in Chile or Peru by whether or not there's – 
bitters in your pisco sour. I see. Uh, anyway, anyway, trying to transition back to to the uh, British Isles, uh, but yeah. So we're talking about. Uh, as you said, chavs, but more generally, some interesting something interesting going on with alcohol regulation in Scotland. Um, so just kind of backing up a little bit. Typically, when a government wants to try and like discourage people from some really unhealthy behavior, a really simple thing to do is just tax it, right? Right. You tax cigarettes. Mm-hmm. People smoke less. You tax sugary drinks. People drink fewer of them. Um, but Scotland is trying to do something a little bit different with alcohol right now. Um, so alcoholism is a big problem in Scotland. It's a bit, yeah, it's a big problem, and it's it's become so. One stat I, I've seen cited a lot is that alcohol-related deaths about doubled um, between the 80s and 2011, um, and they have about 80 percent more um, alcohol-related deaths than the rest of England or it, the rest that, of the UK as well. What age group is that, or is it everywhere in general? Okay. Um, so it's it's a drinking is, is sort of. It is an issue specific. I mean, for all all of the UK drinks a lot, but Scotland in particular is extremely heavy with alcohol. It's like the Milwaukee of the British Isles. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> what in 2012? What the Scottish Parliament did? Because you have to remember they have their own Parliament, even though it's and it's a it is a country, even though it's not technically independent. Um, they decided to pass a law where they couldn't. They couldn't do anything about alcohol taxes, so instead what they did was try to pass a minimum price per unit of alcohol. And the idea here was that it and, would— and it's not just by necessity. It's also by design. Yes, and well, that's exactly what we're— This is like—it's not just, oh, well, we can't do an alcohol tax, so we're going to do this other thing. It's more, it's more that, like, if you— raise an extra like if you raise taxes by 10 percent you know then what happens is that your 100 pound bottle of whiskey becomes an extra you know 110 pound bottle of whiskey but that doesn't discourage alcoholism exactly so that's exactly they don't want to raise taxes on lagavulin 16 year they're trying to instead go after what they typically talk about as you know cheap high strength alcohol right what in the U.S., we typically just think of as like malt liquor. There, they have a lot of really, really, really cheap cider that you can get in like three-liter bottles, um, and that's the kind of booze they're trying to target. So, if you so just, it's like the crazy horses, yeah, of 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 liquor, which is like the, the it's it's or, or just really cheap beer. There's a lot yeah. of like Foster's Lager, which is this Australian lager, is very popular in Scotland. It's like five percent, and you can get it for you know a buck a can. Exactly, and it's big cans. It's yeah. big cans, and so specifically, the Wall Street Journal brought this up as a as a uh, example, the minimum price, it's about 50 pence per uh, unit of alcohol, it would about double the cost of a 20-pack of Fosters, right? So it does target these low, um, these low price, high alcohol, you know, drinks, booze. And so, you know, what was interesting about this is this is now it's being challenged. Um, There were some people in the liquor industry that were for it, especially some brewers who make more expensive products and um, some bartenders, associations, things like that. But it got challenged by the Scotch Whiskey Association, which, again, seems a little strange when you think about it because— Because Scotch whiskey is incredibly expensive expensive, these days. But a lot of the companies that make Scotch whiskey um, are owned by big, you know— So they're making a lot of money on alcoholic So what they're doing is that they're making money on the cheap beer— but they are complaining under the auspices of the Whiskey Association because that gives them more credibility. Yeah, see, exactly. Like, I think, um, I'm a, I mean, some of them are like high-class liquor companies, but like but Pernod, I think, is like one of them. But um, you get the idea. And so so this Scotch Whiskey Association has challenged this essentially in court, um, and it made its way to the European Court of Justice, which sort of, sort of ruled against um, this regulation. What they said was that you can't do it unless you show that this is 
more proportional, quote unquote, and and more effective at helping public health than a regular tax would be. And so this idea, this question is now getting tried in Edinburgh. Is this question is now before a court in Scotland, and they are determining if this minimum pricing mechanism is going to be more effective for dealing with public health than a normal liquor tax. And other countries are looking at this. Ireland's looking at it. Estonia is apparently looking at it. And this could actually become a really fascinating way to try and regulate booze and deal with you know, excessive drinking. I so, don't know if it is the best way or not, but and, it is going to be. By sheer coincidence, it's coinciding with the what's going on in Philadelphia, yeah. where they're trying to impose a kind of similar tax on soda. Um, again, an across-the-board like soda tax, which will be quite large and and the the quirk of the Philadelphia one yeah. is that they're not just taxing sugary soft drinks, which is what most standard soft drink taxes do. They're taxing diet cokes and diet soft drinks as well, um, because everyone was complaining that the original tax was very regressive and it was all a the poor people would get hit and the rich people wouldn't because the poor people, for reasons which I don't entirely understand, generally drink like the full sugar sodas and the rich people drink the diet sodas. And so they're like, well, we're just going to do this for the money. We're not even doing this for public health, health reasons. We're doing it for the money and we want rich people to pay too, so we're going to tax the diet sodas Which too. is actually the opposite of what's going on in Scotland. They're specifically saying we're going after cheap booze that poor people drink um, and we're not getting the money. We, we, just, want this, we want this thing to be as regressive as possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're yeah. saying retailers have to charge more. We're not taking a cut. So unlike if they were passing a tax – they're not getting they're not getting any money from this. The Scottish government is not getting any kind of a windfall here. It's just retailers charging more money for alcohol. That's all that's going to happen. Um, and so, you know, what's a little strange to me about this, and you know, I, I've looked into the research to see if there's anything suggesting I'm wrong. But in general, um, alcohol consumption rises with income. Um, so I've never seen anything saying really only poor people are, are alcoholics, that they're the only problem. So, and I've seen studies suggesting that problem drinking specifically also seems to rise with income. So it, 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 this whole idea of only going after cheap booze does strike me as a little strange, but you know, that's, but that's there, the there is a little bit of, in, there is no, not just a little bit, there's substantial empirical evidence that if you raise the price of alcohol, then people will drink less. That's, that is true. Yeah. So I wanted to elastic. back this up. A little bit historically, because I I learned a little bit about the regulation of alcohol in the U.S. after prohibition was ended. Yeah, and one of the things that they did they didn't do exactly this, obviously, but they did sort of define alcohol content for categories like beer and wine. And what the, what that actually meant was that the the sort of bootleggers could no longer make that stuff too alcoholic. Yeah. It actually brought down the levels yeah. of alcohol what, content. There were, th this is the reason why American beer has historically been so piss poor because there was this <laughs> like three and a half percent limit on right. alcohol, <clears throat> and there was a forty percent limit on liquors, and you know these things are not in you know they're not quite still there. But if you walk into any liquor store or duty free store today, you will still see on the gins and the vodkas and the whiskeys and all of these different liquors, by sheer coincidence, they all seem to be exactly 40%. And you're like, why is that? Right. It's for exactly this historical yes. reason. And what it did was it controlled access. Basically, only certain the sort of um, kinds of stores could sell beer and beer had a well-defined thing and it had this limit and similar with liquor. And, you know, the reason I find that so fascinating is because it's actually kind of a, you could call it a success story of legalizing this previously un illegal substance. 
And I want to compare that, if you don't mind, to the heroin addiction, uh, the heroin epidemic, because one of the things that is true about alcohol that's not true about heroin is that alcohol you know, even if we didn't have limits, could only be 100% alcoholic, right? It couldn't get more than 100% alcoholic. But heroin in the last 10 years has gotten seven times as strong, as potent per gram. So w- w- my point being that if we like legalized and regulated heroin, I know it's radical, but this kind of like law about how strong heroin is allowed to be would actually, you know, be very powerful. I've had versions of this argument uh, many times. Um, it's a long one, uh, but I, I don't think it's crazy. I, I like it's. it's but, but are we all? I mean, I am perfectly happy to come out and say I think this minimum price idea in Scotland is a good idea. Are we unanimous on that? I think it's uh, certainly I, worth trying. Yeah, I think it's. Inter- I want so they've done something like it in, or they've the only other place that's really done this is Saskatchewan, Canada, and there have been some positive reports out of Saskatchewan. Um, but it would, and apparently British Columbia had a version too, but it wasn't really well implemented. So it would be, it's interesting to see a whole, essentially a whole country do this um, and just compare their results. With, Wait, when you say positive reports out of Saskatchewan, like there, is, is that is that a worthwhile Canadian initiative? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway. It's, it's, a, it's a journalism joke. That was, that was, um, it won the award for most boring headline ever. It was worthwhile, worthwhile Canadian, Canadian. <laughs> initiative. <laughs> Paul Krugman likes to use it every time. There's a damn <laughs> like good thing happens in Canada. Okay, um, um, so worthwhile Scottish initiative. We like it, um, and we are going to now have a numbers round. Yeah. Hi, I'm Francis Fry, and I'm Ann Morris, and we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues, or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. Give us a call, and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen. Yeah, Kathy, for the numbers round. So I have a number that's relatively local, and I apologize. But people may have heard um, about the abuse by prison guards at Rikers Island, which is pretty much of a national story. There is a guy who is basically the union boss for the the corrections officers. His name is Norman Seabrook, and he just got arrested on kickback charges. So his he's you know the boss of. This New York City correction officer. Is, is this a story which involves Ferragamo bags? Uh, what? Oh, yes, it is. Yes, that's he. He's like really. He's like really into Ferragamo as a brand. Yeah, because obviously, when you think of prison bosses, what you think of is guys who are really into Ferragamo bags. I don't mean you have to tell the audience what and what Ferragamo fa- is. I had a pair of Ferragamo so loafers. We don't, when we I don't was need to tell the audience what Rikers Island is, but we need to tell them what Ferragamo Rikers is. Are, are, we have a very sophisticated audience. Actually, I would love audience, please write in and tell us whether or not you recognize Ferragamo, Rikers Island, neither or both. I would like to hear a poll. <laughs> slate money at slate.com. I haven't ever said my number. My number is 60,000, <laughs> which is 60 which is how many dollars this guy got in kickbacks in Be- a Ferragamo bag. In, a, in yes, in cash in a Ferragamo Gummo bag um, in kickbacks for like forcing his union to uh, invest twenty million dollars in a shitty hedge fund. It wasn't actually such a shitty hedge fund. Oh, really? I mean, it is a shitty hedge fund. It's a very shitty hedge fund, but at least it got good returns. Yeah, but also like talk about a, key, a cheap bribe. 
Like, I know that's it's impressive. Sixty thousand. No, yeah, and apparently one of the reasons he got caught was because he was so upset at how little how little it was, and he wanted more. Oh well, that's, oh my god. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to negotiate that ahead of time. You can't be like. Well, anyway, I blogged about how evil this guy is, but just suffice it to say, if you listen to the Mets radio broadcast in New York City. Um, this guy is on like fear mongering and, and just being awful like every commercial break and I'm so glad he's, he's arrested. Oh wow. So this is the guy who's like saying that if you don't support the prison officers then we will have rampant crime or something. He's like, all the Arkham you know, Asylum prisoners are going to break out and take pretty over much, Gotham. He's yeah. pretty much like we are protecting you from men who want to rape your daughter. He says that every single time. I'm like oh my god stop talking. I don't have a daughter. He's evil. <laughs> I know, no, like, or kill your wife. I mean, he's very, very evil. I'm so okay. glad he's arrested. He's, he's arrested. My number is 65 billion pounds, which is the amount of money which left sterling assets just in um, a month, basically, in March. So is that a really shitty head fund? Wor- works, works out at about 1.3 million pounds a minute um, at, at, at the height, there were seventy-seven billion pounds left sterling assets over six months, compared to two billion pounds in the previous six months. This is Brexit, obviously. This is huge, and I'm sure this number is going up as Brexit becomes more and more of a real worry. Um, the latest opinion polls show more people want to leave the EU than to remain. And so the result of these opinion polls is literally hundreds of billions of dollars leaving. The pound leaving stocks which are denominated in pounds, leaving bonds which are denominated in pounds. This is capital flight from sterling. It's not capital flight from London, interestingly enough. It's probably all just staying in London, but just into, you know, euro assets or dollar assets or anything which isn't pounds. But the the Brexit campaign, never mind the result, just the fact that there's a referendum at all is causing serious financial consequences. Having spent the last four days listening, watching the BBC, it's like everywhere, everywhere. They're very worried about it. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's not so bad for the financial center, but not so great for the rest of the country. Um, so I'm going to do something we don't usually do. Originally, I was going to take this opportunity to make fun of Paul Ryan, which you all know I love. But instead, I'm going to return to our earlier topic because there's a number from it I did not get to share. Oh, let's hear it. It involves Jerome Carvale again. Oh, what? awesome. And it is – because I really want to talk about how hot he is. But it's 1,400, which is the – 1,400 kilometers, which is the distance in uh, – from the Rome to the French border essentially – so I mentioned how he tried to kind of transform himself. Into He's a, a pilgrim. Year. So he had this thing where he met the Pope after he got into all this trouble and then decided to do a reverse pilgrimage from Rome to the French border, just walking along. And you know, he did wearing this red windbreaker and turning himself into, I don't know, like the Johnny Appleseed of former rogue traders or something. I don't anyway. He also wrote a book, by the way, about his memories of it. Yeah, which is just like the most French fucking way to handle this <laughs> sort of thing. So is does he have like a huge fan club? I don't know. He kind of does apparently. Well, I yeah. mean, if you look like Liev Schreiber. Yeah. Seriously. You look like Liev Schreiber. You've become like a penitent former rogue trader who now likes to indict the system. He's like the perfect he's, – he's turned himself into the, the perfect victim of the system. So that that is that is it for us this week. I will say on behalf of uh, frequent sponsor – Harry's raises that even though Jerome Caville is very good looking with his designer stubble, you can easily you can also be very good looking without <laughs> designer stubble. Um, 
in any case, thank you for, for listening. Do send us an email. Um, the email address is slatemoney at slate.com. And as Jordan says, your email, you have four choices. You can either have heard of Rikers Island or you've heard of Ferragamo or you've heard of neither or you've heard, heard of both. And let us know. Let us know. Um, thanks to Audrey Quinn, the producer. Thanks to the executive producers, uh, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. Check out all of the Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.